This is Morning Air. This is about educating a people that for 40 years haven't been given the full truth. It's time now to speak the truth. When you do things to the best of your ability, keeping Jesus number one and doing everything you possibly can for His glory, that's a winner. You are called to make the light of Christ shine brightly in the world. Bringing the light of Christ to start your day. This is Morning Air with John Morales on Relevant Radio. Four minutes after the hour, it's Thursday, November 18th. Good morning and welcome to Morning Air on the Feast of the Dedication of the Basilicas of Saints Peter and Paul, as well as the Memorial of St. Rose, Philippine Duchenne. I'm John Morales, along with Glenn Leverance. Thanks so much for joining us. Good to be with you. Happy Thursday. We always remember that on Holy Thursday, our Lord Jesus Christ instituted the Holy Eucharist at the Last Supper. It's a good time to make a spiritual communion uh, during the day today or make a visit to the Blessed Sacrament. Always good to reflect and meditate on the beautiful gift of the Holy Eucharist. Yesterday, the U.S. Bishops Conference voted to adopt a long-debated teaching document on the Holy Eucharist. There was a lot of main stream media speculation over the last few months if the text would contain reference to pro-abortion Catholic politicians or the possibility of prohibiting Catholics from Holy Communion. The document does not have such language. The bishops also voted to launch a a quite ambitious three-year revival initiative culminating with a National Eucharistic Congress in Indianapolis in 2024. We're going to have much more on the USCCB meetings coming up in the next hour with Pablo K of Angeles News, who's in Baltimore. As we do every morning, we start each hour giving thanks to our Lord for the many blessings that we receive, always asking through the intercession of the Mother of God, our Blessed Mother Mary. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady of Guadalupe, patroness of the Americas, patroness of life and of relevant radio, pray for us. St. Joseph, in this year of St. Joseph, pray for us. St. John Paul II, co-patron of relevant radio, pray for us. And we always invoke the Holy Spirit every day when we pray, come Holy Spirit, come. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. And as we do every morning, our power scripture from the playbook of life is from Romans 13a. The Apostle St. Paul writes, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. The Apostle St. Paul reminds us that love is the fulfillment of the law. When our Lord Jesus Christ was asked about the greatest commandment, he responded by saying, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. As followers of Jesus, as Catholics, again, we have to be people of love. At the end of the day, that's what it's all about. Remember also that you are loved. And we always pray with great confidence, Jesus, I trust in you. A quick reminder to sign up for Father Rocky's Advent Inspirations. These are short, compelling daily audio reflections emailed to you each morning, all during the Advent season. You can sign up for Father Rocky's free Advent Inspirations at relevantradio.com advent or just simply click on the banner on the Relevant Radio app. 
Our number, if you want to be part of the program, 888-914-9149. Now, for four-plus decades, the University of Mary has hosted Prayer Day as an opportunity to pause and reflect on the many gifts of God. Prayer Day took place yesterday at the University of Mary, and this year's keynote speaker was Catherine Jean Lopez, senior fellow at the National Review Institute, where she directs the Center for Religion, Culture, and Civil Society, and serves as editor-at-large of National Review. To learn much more about the University of Mary, visit cometomary.life. Joining us now live to talk about the annual Prayer Day is Monsignor James Shea, the president of the University of Mary, along with special guest Catherine Jean Lopez. Uh, good morning. Uh, welcome, Monsignor Shea and Catherine. Great to be with both of you this morning. Thanks so much uh, for being with us. It's good to be with you, uh, John, and good to be with my friend Catherine Jean Lopez today, too. It is a double blessing, Monsignor. Um, Monsignor, can you give us just a, a real quick um, uh, historical perspective on Prayer Day at the University of Mary that's been going on now for uh, four-plus decades? Right. Yesterday was the 44th annual prayer day at the university, and we hold it during the week of the anniversary of our founding. So yesterday was also Founders Day. It was the 62nd anniversary of the day that the university received its charter uh, and was founded by the, by the Benedictine Sisters of Annunciation Monastery. So we've been at this for a long time. We've had prominent Catholic speakers from all over the country come and address our students, our faculty, our staff, and then people from the broader community as well who come onto campus and are seeking a day in which they can kind of step in out from the winds of their lives and reflect upon God, God's presence, and the power of prayer. And so we have a keynote speaker. We have uh, a big mass that we have in our main chapel as well, very beautiful, lots of music. And then in addition to that, right now, and I think about the bishops' um, conference and the new document on Eucharistic coherence and all of these things, uh, we have around-the-clock adoration for 40 hours. And so there's a 40 hours devotion uh, that's attached to it as well. So Catherine Jean was here yesterday, um, and she spoke to a, uh, to a, uh, a full room. Uh, Founders Hall was jam-packed, and she did a wonderful job recalling to us the importance of the power of prayer. And I thought, John, that this is a perfect message as well for all of our listeners. In other words, all of us need to remember, not just the students of the University of Mary, but all of us as disciples of Jesus have to be reminded of the importance of prayer in our lives. That praying, as Peter Kraft once said, is more important than eating, because the soul is more important than the body. Catherine, uh, good to be with you. Uh, thanks for uh, joining us here on, on Morning Air. Of course. Thank you so much for having me on. And uh, Kath, Catherine, can you talk a little bit about uh, the uh, various themes uh, that you shared with, with the students uh, yesterday at Prayer Day? Sure. Of course, we talked about the essential nature of prayer. And, uh, you know, we're... We're people in the United States who value action so much. We even think of some of our beautiful saints like Mother Cabrini and Elizabeth Ann Seton um, as doers. Um, and the fact of the matter is they couldn't do anything they did if it weren't for their life of prayer. And that's something we often uh, don't, don't value as much as the uh, products of, you know, of their work. And so 
it was such a blessing to be able to go out to North Dakota and, and see my old friend, Monsignor Shea. And every time I go out to the University of Mary, I think this was my fourth visit over uh, 12 years or so, and uh, it's it's really it's reinvigorating. Um, I I had a little time before my flight out, and uh, I went into the the chapel, and it was just so moving to see. At three o'clock in the afternoon, um, there was a healthy uh, um, group of students who were praying, and on on confession line. And uh, so it wasn't, this wasn't a prayer day in name only. Uh, Students were really participating. Staff was participating. It was just so beautiful to see. And uh, such a reminder that uh, this is what we need. You know, um, we talk so much about about things, you know, about what the bishops are doing, about what uh, I mentioned in my in my talk, the, the Supreme Court case on abortion coming up. Um, if we prayed and fasted as much as we talk, uh, that that could be super powerful. Absolutely. And it's got to be awfully uh, uplifting for you uh, to talk uh, about, uh, you know, the silence of prayer uh, as Catholic Christians and then to see all these young people, the future of our Mm -hmm. church uh, in adoration in midday. Oh, absolutely. No, I told them they're they're a sign of hope. Uh, It's so beautiful. Again, every time I go out there, I see such goodness. and yeah, no, we we see on the news, of course, so many things that that, that cause us to be discouraged, right? But uh, but this is the stuff that doesn't make the news, you know. And Monsignor, um, how how was uh, Prayer Day received by by the students? Uh, this wonderful opportunity to really reflect on, on uh, the mission of uh, the University of Mary and the Marian message of being uh, joyful Catholics. Well, it was received very well, and that's because of our speaker. I know I don't want to embarrass her on the air, but one of the reasons that I was so intent, John, upon having Catherine Jean as our prayer day speaker this year is because, as you and I have talked about on the air, we do find ourselves at a difficult time in history as Catholics and as Americans. There's a whole lot of division in our society right now. And Catherine is a person, even though she, she lives her life in the world of commentary and journalism and politics, she is able, because of her life of prayer, because of the vocation that God has given to her, because of the deep connection that she feels in prayer and experiences in prayer with Jesus and the Eucharist, she's able to keep her barren, bearing. She's not able, she's not... Um, She's not the kind of person who becomes bitter or cynical or jaded. And I wanted our students to see that that's possible. And boy, oh boy, did Catherine deliver yesterday. She was very, she was very good, and she said, you know, even though I spend my life following the world of politics, even though I spend my life in commentary and journalism and writing, I need to stay connected to Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament. I need to receive God's grace into the midst of my life. And that's really important. And then she spoke into some of the, some of the issues of our time uh, that are really contentious and that a lot of us are worried about. A lot of us, John, are watching very carefully this upcoming Supreme Court case, the Dobbs case, 
in which there's a hope that Roe versus Wade at long last could be overturned, and that question could be returned to the states. And so a lot of us have been in the pro-life movement for a long time. We've been getting our hopes up. We're following the news so quick, so closely. And Catherine reminded us that we have to fast and pray, and that that's much more productive, that's much more impactful than pontificating, commenting, or worrying. And Catherine, uh, talk a little bit about how a prayer has formed your career uh, as a journalist. Sure. Um, Monsignor Shea was very kind to talk about um, the, uh, when I got it right. <laughs> um, but one of the things I shared with, uh, with the students and the, the, the faculty at, at the University of Mary is that I don't always get it right. And for a long time, I uh, in my life, I I uh, really struggled with with the prayer because I felt like I needed to be productive before I needed to pray, and that is the worst thing you could possibly do. And uh, and I recalled to uh, to them that uh, in uh, 2012, I was in Rome and at a conference at the Vatican. And Pope Benedict came out and addressed us at the opening of this conference on on the Church in the Americas, and uh, he kind of rebuked us and said, "If you are uh, doing Catholic work, if you're a Catholic leader, and you're not encountering Jesus Christ in prayer constantly, then your new evangelization plans or whatever you're working on isn't worth anything." And that was such. Uh, an important message uh, because there are there is such a temptation if you are working in the church or you're doing Catholic work you know your job is is a Catholic job like working at relevant radio you know or the University of Mary right um, there can be such a temptation to do stuff and you know I'm really busy you know um, and I'm doing good work and not spend the time in prayer, and that is so dangerous. And I certainly have had my times in, in my life where I fell into that trap, and uh, that's the last thing you want to do. In fact, I think Fulton Sheen said, if you're busy, you know, he was, he was a, such a proponent of a holy hour, and if you're busy, do two of them. If you think you're too busy for one hour, do two. I love it. I love it. I'm a big fan of Archbishop Fulton Sheen, and uh, he mm. has uh, inspired me tremendously over the years, especially the power of praying in front of the Blessed Sacrament. Uh, so uh, your words, Catherine, are resonating with this former sports reporter. Uh, Monsignor, can you talk about the power of intercessory prayer, especially here in this month of November, the month of the Holy Souls? Right. This is a month, as you say, in which we remember all of those who have gone before us in faith. And we pray with great devotion. We had just the other day, the day that Catherine arrived on campus, we had the Feast of St. Gertrude the Great. We're a Benedictine university. She was a great Benedictine uh, mystic and saint. And one of the deep devotions that she had was to the holy souls in purgatory. Catherine, of course, could tell you much more about it because she's written this magnificent book a couple of years ago. Maybe it was released actually during the pandemic on uh, A Year with the Mystics, Visionary Wisdom for Daily Life. But, um, but uh, the, the prayer for uh, the poor souls, the intercessory prayer is very powerful because it allows us 
to, you know, we talk about the spiritual and the corporal works of mercy. We talk about the way in which we as Catholics need to be engaged in the lives of others, that we receive mercy, and so we're meant in our lives to be dispensaries of mercy too. And one way that we can do that is by praying for each other, and especially not forgetting, because the whole world has forgotten them, not forgetting the poor souls in purgatory who depend upon our intercessory prayer, our devotion, and our sacrifices on their behalf. It's really important as Catholics, especially during this month of November, that we call them to mind. And, and, and that's one of the great things about Prayer Day is we're able to remind our students and those of us who serve our students are able to remind ourselves that there are different kinds of prayer and the different kinds of prayer are meant to be engaged in fully by us as Catholics such that we can live a full and free spiritual life. And so Jesus draws us into his life by inviting us into different, into different manners of prayer and intercessory prayer for sure is one of those big prayers. Our guest this morning, Monsignor James Shea, the president of the University of Mary, and Catherine Jean Lopez, a senior fellow at the National Review Institute. Uh, Catherine, uh, can you talk a little bit about the importance of the virtue of perseverance in prayer uh, to be able to serve the Lord uh, the way that you do? This is something that obviously is for all of us to persevere in prayer, to pray without ceasing. Yeah, you know, Mother Teresa is such a, an example of this. We we learned that she had such dryness for so long. Uh, she didn't pray so she could be consoled, you know. And that's so important that whatever we're experiencing in prayer, we keep at it, you know. God will work it with us at uh, in different ways at different points in our lives. And to just stay with that is so uh, crucial. I think Gertrude is such a beautiful example of someone, too, who uh, in the Office of Readings on her feast day, we get an example of her truly worshiping God. You know, often I think we can get into this uh, routine of going to prayer to ask God for things, you know, to ask for consolation, to ask for help with our problems. But it's so important to... uh, to praise him, to thank him. Um, I have to say, every time I'm at the University of Mary, it's easy to do that because it's just such a beautiful place where you can see God's natural beauty, the beauty of creation. And it leads you to to have a deeper appreciation for the beauty of every individual person, every individual soul. And uh, so it was a a blessing to to be there because it's, does reinvigorate your your faith. Absolutely. And uh, Monsignor, I thought it was uh, quite appropriate uh, that after uh, the, the wonderful keynote uh, addressed by, by Catherine yesterday on, on Prayer Day, that you had the greatest of all the prayers, the Holy Mass, mm-hmm. at the Our Lady of the Assumption Chapel. Yeah, well, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful thing, and this happens several times a week when that chapel, which seats about 600 people, is filled to overflowing with those who come to worship the Lord and receive Him in the Blessed Sacrament. And that did happen today, yesterday. And it was actually a very particularly beautiful uh, Eucharist. The, the music was beautiful. The sense of prayer and reverence was very deep. And, of course, it was great to have our keynote speaker there praying with us as well and members of the public who had come out for, 
for the keynote. And so it was a beautiful day all around. It filled my heart with hope for the coming year. Uh, Catherine, uh, a final thought on the importance of persevering in prayer, especially in anticipation of this upcoming uh, Dobbs case here in uh, December that could overturn uh, Roe v. Wade. Do you still feel that life is winning in America? Um, Well, the Lord is victorious. So, yes, Um, you know, I I come to you from from not North Dakota, but New York City um, this morning. And it's the abortion capital of the world. And I'm actually on the same block as an abortion clinic. And uh, so it can be very discouraging. But the fact of the matter is, you know, in anticipation for the Supreme Court case, a lot of people um, are making predictions and, and talking about what they hope will happen, et cetera, et cetera. And we need to fast and we need to pray. If we spend as much time doing that as we make predictions and and uh complain about things and whatnot um i think we would uh we would be a very powerful and constructive presence in our country so i encourage people to do that um in in the uh in the uh in, in anticipating this case and and frankly december 1st is is the oral argument pray through through june in an intense way um, I mentioned to the, the, the students and, and, and uh, faculty and staff that uh, my friends at the Sisters of Life are entering into, have entered into a very intense fast. And a friend of mine who's a sister celebrated her 70th birthday on Friday, but she did not celebrate it on Friday because that's a day of intense fasting and prayer. So she celebrated on, uh, on Sunday, and I think that's a, a really important witness. Absolutely. Monsignor Shea, I'll give you the last word. I I just want to say how important it is that we have prayer day, not just on the University of Mary, but throughout the church, and not just one day a year, but every single day of our lives. It's so important for us to remember that we were made for God, that we're headed for God, that he's calling us into eternal union with him, and that's the most important thing. We access that life here below through the sacraments, and through prayer. And so to be faithful to them is our great privilege and honor as Catholics. Thank you, as always, uh, Monsignor Shea. So much appreciate your wisdom. And uh, thank you also, uh, Catherine Jean Lopez, for, uh, for being with us this morning. Uh, it's, it's so good to hear your journalistic voice. Absolutely. Thank you so much. God bless you. Catherine Jean Lopez, Senior Fellow at the National Review Institute, where she directs the Center for Religion, Culture, and Civil Society. And uh, Monsignor James Shea, President of the University of of Mary, uh, thank you so much to both of you. You can learn much more about the University of Mary. Just visit cometomary.life. We need to take a short break. When Morning Air continues, we're going to be joined by Steve Wiedenkopf, lecturer in church history at Christendom College, the author of the book, The Glory of the Crusades, a deep look into the history between Muslims and Christians. Stay with us. It'll be a fascinating conversation on this issue of the Crusades as Morning Air continues after this. You're listening to Morning Air with John Morales. Coast to coast on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Good morning, friends. Good morning, friends. Good morning, friends. Every day's a brand new morning since the morning you moved in. Good morning, friend. 
feeling a little bit country. 30 minutes after the hour. Welcome back to Morning Air. I'm John Morales along with Glenn Leverance. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Our number, if you want to be part of the program, 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149. Now we're going to talk about something that we really haven't addressed, uh, at least since I've been hosting this program, the Crusades. In fact, the Crusades have been used by many to justify the claims of Christianity as a domineering and intolerant religion. Seeing it as a war, we might be led to believe the same thing as Catholics, but what were the Crusades actually fought over, and what are some of the main myths about the Crusades? Joining us now is Steve Wiedenkopf to share the real story of the Crusades. Steve is a lecturer in church history at Christendom College Graduate School of Theology in Alexandria, Virginia. He has given numerous presentations and seminars in church history, marriage, and family life, as well as human sexuality and theology throughout the U.S. and Canada. Good morning, Steve. Welcome to Morning Air. Good to be with you today. Good morning, John. Thanks for having me on the show, and and glad to be here. Absolutely. This is, I I believe, a very uh, interesting uh, topic, the topic of the Crusades. And there's a lot of folks that have heard about the Crusades, but they really don't know a whole lot about it. Can you give us kind of an overview of what were the Crusades? Yeah, you're exactly right, John. It, the Crusades is one of are one of those historical events, right? That people have that has wide recognition. People will hear the word; they'll have a kind of a mental image of what they think the Crusades were. A lot of that's been shaped and formed by you know various media presentations, films, or documentaries, what have you. But then there is very little serious understanding about what these actual events were, and why people went on them, and, and those kinds of questions. So. Um, great topic, and, and just to give a brief overview, I mean, the Crusades really began, or the Crusading movement, we really should say, began towards the end of the 11th century, uh, when Pope Blessed Urban II, at a local council of Clermont in France, calls for what later becomes known as the First Crusade. And what he asked for was warriors of Christendom to travel to the Holy Land and to liberate the city of Jerusalem, in particular the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, from uh, Islamic occupation. And uh, it really begins to, uh, the crusading movement really begins in this late 11th century because of a specific event, if you will. There was a group of people known as the Seljuk Turks who came down from the the, um, Mongolian steppe. And they come into what is today modern-day Turkey at the time was a province of the Byzantine Empire known as Anatolia. And they win a series of big battles against the Byzantine Empire, and they begin to consolidate their their holdings in what is again modern day Turkey. And the Byzantine Emperor is concerned about this. There's you know, this military invasion, if you will. So he sends representatives to the West uh, to the Pope. The Pope at that time was was Gregory the Seventh, and asks him to to send military aid to the East to help the Eastern Christians in this fight against this Islamic military invasion. So that's kind of the backdrop to why the Crusades begin in the 11th century. And so uh, contrary to to some people's uh, misinformed opinions, uh, it was not an aggressive attack on the part of uh, Christianity. It was just the opposite. It was a a defensive um, move uh, on the part of of Pope Urban II to to try to liberate uh, the Holy Land. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's, you hit on it. That's one of the major myths that people have about the Crusades uh, today in the modern world is that this was some kind of 
offensive, you know, European uh, invasion of the Holy Land against, you know, peaceful Muslims who had been there since the 7th century, uh, you know. And so, but that's not, when you look at the actual historical record, that's not exactly what had happened, right? There had been Christians, uh, indigenous Christians and um, you know, Jews living in the Holy Land since the Islamic, the initial Islamic invasion back in the 7th century. And there have been relative periods of peace between those peoples. And sometimes there have, there were times of, of great uh, violence. And when the Seljuks come into the territory uh, here at the end of the 11th, they begin to uh, you know, harass uh, the indigenous Christians. They're, they begin to harass as well Christian pilgrims who are, who are coming from Christendom, from Europe, to the Holy Land to visit the holy sites. Right, that had been ongoing from Europe since the fourth century, and again, uh, you know, since the time of the initial Islamic invasion, there were periods of peace where Christian pilgrims were not harassed at all and, and left alone. There are no times when there was violence, and the, and the violence begins to ratchet up here in the eleventh century with the arrival of these new people, and so there there needed to be a response, a defensive response, uh, and that's what Pope Urban asked for, and that's how Christian warriors who participate in the Crusades. That's what they believed that they were doing. They were participating in a just war designed to protect indigenous Christians in the Holy Land, Christian pilgrims traveling, and to reconquer, re-liberate, or liberate, actually, the territory, Christian territory, uh, in the Holy Land in North Africa. Uh, How bad was the persecution at the time of uh, Catholic Christians? Because this was before the Reformation, so there was really still uh, really East and Western Christians. Uh, There were no Protestant Christians at that point. Yeah, that's true. The persecution, as I mentioned, was, was at times could be very difficult. I mean, in the in the middle part of the 11th century, in 1065 or so, there was a very famous, well-known, at least in historical circles, of a, a group of German pilgrims who left from what is modern-day Germany to go to the Holy Land with their bishop. Um, you know, estimates vary. This could have been anywhere from several thousand to 10,000 or so people, so it's a very large pilgrimage. Went to the Holy Land and were uh, they were attacked and, and were slaughtered by uh, you know, the Turks at the time. Uh, in, in the Holy Land, so there was uh, there was reports of that coming back to Europe. Uh, there were again, you know, critics. There were earlier in the century, in the 11th century, uh, an Egyptian caliph by the name of uh, Al Hakim had had uh, destroyed the um, Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the, one of the original the original churches that had been built um, you know, all the way back to the time of the fourth century with Saint Helena and Constantine. Uh, he destroyed that church in the early part of the 11th. The news of that came back to Europe, and that was that was obviously met with great um, concern and and uh, and you know, anger. Really, uh, that church would later be built, rebuilt um, before the Crusaders arrived, and then the first Crusaders would add to the church as well uh, to, to get the kind of current modern day church that we have there now. Uh, so you know there were various reports of, of at times you know great persecution, and that that really motivated many of these warriors to heed Pope Urban's call and to participate in this armed pilgrimage. One thing that we know for sure is there, there's been a lot of myths that, that have come out of the Crusades. In fact, uh, even in, in the last hundred years, uh, there's been all kinds of tales that have been spun that are not based on reality, not based on what actually happened, but uh, uh, it, it's a, a kind of a, a opinions of people uh, that have, have come up with, with all kinds of different stories. In fact, um, one of my colleagues here at Relevant Radio, Patrick Madrid, uh, wrote a, a fascinating book called Pope Fiction, and in it he 
he has a whole chapter dedicated uh, to the role of uh, the uh, the papacy, uh, the the vicar of Christ and the, and the Crusades. And one of those myths that he, that he writes about the, was that the papacy started the bloodbath of the Crusades, and that the Pope's greed for the Holy Land drove them uh, to order the massacre of millions of Jews and Muslims. Uh, Steve, this really is a myth. Yeah, it is exactly, and and uh, you know, Patrick, that's a great book that that he wrote years ago on, on, the, on the papacy, and and I wrote a book on the Crusades specifically a few years ago called The Glory of the Crusades, where I walk through many of these different modern day myths that people have about the Crusades, uh, and encounter it with authentic history, and and the one the myth that, that that Patrick references there in his book is is a fairly well known myth in terms of it's been perpetuated and, and continues to be discussed, sadly, of even. Um, after the September 11th attacks in November of 2001, former President Bill Clinton gave a speech at Georgetown University where he talks about, or he talked about, uh, trying to answer the question why, you know, the United States was attacked um, by these Islamic terrorists, and and he cited this particular event in Jerusalem uh, right after the First Crusade, the so-called Massacre of Jerusalem, uh, where you know, thousands of of Jews and uh, Muslims in the holy in the holy city were supposedly massacred um, by the crusaders to the point where there was blood running up to their to their knees. There was blood up to the bridle of their horses. I mean, there's various different accounts of how much blood was being spilled that day. Um, and so, even you know, even that was repeated. That that myth was repeated in that context not not that long ago. And you still hear that. And and that's a, a myth that's that's rooted really in. Uh, a misunderstanding of some of the chronicles uh, that were written uh, during the time of the Crusades and right after the Crusades to describe what happened in the Holy City in Jerusalem after the first Crusaders were able to liberate it. There definitely was a battle. There definitely was, you know, people who were killed. There were more than likely there were, you know, non-combatants killed after the Crusade armies were able to get into the Holy City. That was very common at the time, frankly, for that type of siege warfare. Uh, if a city holds out against a besieging army, once the army gets into the city, it really is kind of a no-holds-barred kind of situation. Um, not to justify it, but th- that's how we can understand and explain it. Uh, but there was in no way, shape, or form, you know, that, that amount of bloodshed that's, that's usually levied against that particular event. Again, Christian chroniclers at the time wrote in those terms saying that we, you know, there were so many people that were killed in the city, that it was, you know, blood that was running up to, uh, you know, the bridle of the horses. But when you when you delve into that chronicle a little bit more and you look at those sources, that's really an, an, an uh, allegory, and it's really more of a reference to um, various scriptural passages, especially in Revelation, that talk about God's judgment and God's wrath being placed upon unbelievers. And so that's what that that commentary is, is rooted in and what it was trying to the story was trying to tell people back home of what had happened, that the crusaders came in, they liberated the city, God was with them, his judgment was upon the unbelievers in the city, and so, you know, they were up to, you know, that's why they were able to to conquer the city and liberate it, if you will. So it was allegorical, not meant to be taken uh, literally. We're speaking this morning with uh, with Steve uh, Weidenkopf, lecturer in church history at Christendom College, also the author of The Glory of the Crusades. We're talking about the Crusades. Steve, should uh, Catholics uh, in this day and age uh, feel in any way, shape, or form ashamed of the Crusades? 
Yeah, no, I don't think so. I mean, that's it's, uh, it, it, a kind of a common uh, response, I think, in many in many cases, right? That when when we as Catholics are confronted by other people about the Crusades, we 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 tend to to kind of you know put our head down or, or say, oh yeah, those things shouldn't have happened or whatever. But but I think that that response is rooted in a, a lack of understanding of what the Crusading movement was and why people went on the crusading movement uh, or why they participated in the crusades. And so I think it's very incumbent upon us, and that's what I really, that's kind of the thesis of, of my book, is is that we need to understand these events. They were an integral part of the life of the church for centuries. I mean, the crusading movement lasted from the 11th century all the way into the 17th century. So we're talking, you know, more than 500 plus years of of, of involvement by the church, right? These were Catholic events. They were called by the Pope. Uh, Catholic warriors participated in them. There were great spiritual uh, events, frankly. They, they, the warriors who participated in them saw them as pilgrimages. They were armed pilgrimages. They were going specifically uh, to liberate the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and other ancient Christian areas. Uh, and so it was. In, in many cases, we see we have accounts of how penitential the warriors participated in these events. Uh, how they saw this as a great opportunity, uh, a spiritual opportunity. So I think there's many things we can learn from the people who participated in these events, uh, and we need to fight through the myths that have been, uh, you know, created about the Crusades in order to discredit our church and to and to attack her really and to try to lessen her influence in the world. Uh, we need to do that with authentic history, and we need to not be ashamed of of our past history, good and bad. We're uh, speaking this morning with uh, Steve Weidenkopf uh, from Christendom College. Uh, he's a historian. We're talking about the Crusades. Uh, this is your opportunity, brothers and sisters, if you have any questions, if you ever wondered about the Crusades, anything you want to ask uh, Steve, we, we do have some open lines, uh, 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149. If you're a student of history and you're fascinated by this period of the Crusades, uh, do jump into the conversation. We need to take a short break as we continue speaking with Steve Weinkoff. Stay with us. We'll have much more on the other side. Get connected to the conversation. Call us now. 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149. You're listening to Morning Air with John Morales. On Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. 888-914-9149. Welcome back to Morning Air. I'm John Morales. Uh, Thanks for being with us this morning as we continue our discussion on the Crusades uh, with lecturer in church history at Christendom College, Steve Weidenkopf. He's also the author of The Glory of the Crusades, which is available on paperback or in paperback um, on Amazon. Uh, Steve, welcome back. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me on the show. Steve, just the very title of your book, The Glory of the Crusades, makes you wonder, uh, uh, how can the Crusades uh, be called the glorious? Yeah, I get that question a lot, and and uh, a good question. So, you know, I the way that the reason why I titled the book that was was there were two kind of um, meanings behind it. So, one is uh, taken from a, a quote actually from a Catholic historian, politician, an English Catholic historian, politician, Hilar Belloc, uh, in the early 20th century, 
when he was writing at the time when it was after the First World War and the European powers were uh, establishing colonial enterprises in what is now you know the Holy Land, Syria, Jordan, um, Jerusalem, Israel, modern day Israel, and and he was writing about the, about that. Uh, these kind of new colonial enterprises in the, in the 20th century, early 20th century. And, and he said, you know, we're returning to this area, uh, this, this land of the, of where the crusaders had once been centuries before. He said, but we're returning to that territory, um, you know, without the, the glory of, of the previous crusaders. And what he meant by that was, and he went on in detail to describe that, but what he meant by that was the, the spiritual underpinnings behind the crusading movement. He was criticizing his own, uh, you know, uh, government and his, the, the European powers of the time that they were, had been so thoroughly secularized that um and many of the people of the time were uh, in those european countries were talking about um you know these these colonial endeavors they were using crusading imagery to describe them and belloc was very critical of that saying you know yeah okay fine you can use crusader imagery to discuss what we're doing here in the modern world but we're 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 not our endeavors here are not uh, girded by a faith not girded by the catholic faith and he said that, you know, the warriors who had come centuries before to this territory had come because of their faith. And that was the glory of what they were participating in, that it was a spiritual movement, really. Uh, so that was one reason why I chose that title for the book. The other uh, was the, if you understand what the, what the word, the Hebrew word glory in the Old Testament uh, is kavad. And what that word means really is, is this understanding of God's, the importance of God, the weightiness of God, right? That God should be central in our lives. And so I, the title of my book was called to, was really kind of a clarion call to Catholics to understand these events, understand the importance of these events in the life of the church uh, and in the life of her history and to, and the, the weightiness of them and to, know them authentically in order so that we can defend our, our story and our history from people who attack it in the modern world because they, they don't like the church and they don't like the gospel message. Uh, and we need to be armed with authentic truth in order to to uh, refute those myths that, that come about, especially of these historical events. Absolutely. 888-914-9149. In fact, Joanne uh, has a question for you, Steve. Joanne is joining us uh, from Branchville, New Jersey. Uh, welcome, Joanne. Uh, you're on with uh, Steve uh, Weidenkoff. Good morning, gentlemen. Um, I recently uh, attended a... Um, installation in offices for the Austrian uh, Knights of the Holy Sepulchre at Sanchez Cathedral uh, with, Bishop Do- with Cardinal Dolan presiding, and it was a very moving experience. My brother-in-law went a notch. But I was curious. The men are in white, well, capes with the Jerusalem cross and different designations on their apparel and a black beret, and women are dressed all in black. It's almost you know, I don't know if it's morning. I, don't, well, I was just wondering if there's some kind of meaning to that. And I have to say, I'm not familiar. I was not familiar with the, the Knights of the Holy Sepulchre. Um, but what an amazing group of, of people doing great things. But anyway, what is the significance of the women in black? Or is there a significance? Yeah, Joanne, thanks so much for your question. And, and um, it's a question kind of near and dear to my heart because actually I am a knight of the Equestrian Order of the Holy Sepulchre of Jerusalem myself. So I'm very, very familiar with the organization. Uh, and what, what the organization is, for those who don't know, is it's a, uh, a church-affiliated 
order that has both lay people and uh, and clerics, priests as as members, uh, and we are focused mostly on providing uh, you know, charitable efforts and initiatives to Christians in the Holy Land uh, in the modern day. So we we are really focused on ensuring that there is a Christian presence that remains in the Holy Land in these various countries uh, where we've seen, sadly, especially in the 20th century. Um, a, a huge movement and migration of peoples away, Christians are out of the Holy Land. And so we want to ensure that there is a pre- presence of Christians uh, in the birthplace of Christ uh, in particular for, for, for centuries to come. Uh, and so we do a lot of charitable work and things like that there. And uh, there's, as you mentioned, there's this you know, installation ceremony when knights and dames are, are, are initiated into the order. And uh, I don't, frankly, I don't know exactly why black is chosen for the women to wear, uh, maybe just in contrast to the, the white cape. Uh, that the knights uh, receive, but uh, that is that is the uh, apparel of the order, a white cape, as you mentioned, for for the men, and the black beret, and then a, a black um, uh, mantilla for the uh, for the for the dames. So uh, that's the order, but it grew out of uh, the history of that briefly, as it grows out of the the liberation of the holy city of Jerusalem after the first crusade in the summer of 1099. Uh, there's a guard that's established uh, by Godfrey de Bayon, who was one of the military commanders of the First Crusade. He establishes a military guard of the tomb of the of the, of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, uh, and these were were knights. And so it's from that initial guard, the military guard of the tomb, that the order grows out. Uh, it develops and changes over time. Uh, eventually, reorganized in the 19th century and, and focused more obviously on, on uh, charitable endeavors than than any kind of military endeavor today. Thanks so much, Joanne. I hope that helps. You came to the right place. Uh, Steve, uh, here in this day and age, uh, can you give us a a perspective on where we're at? Uh, What is the current state of affairs? What can we learn from history, from the Crusades, that applies to today for Catholics and other Christians? Yeah, I think what we can learn definitely is just, the again, to understand the real story of the Crusades and know why people participated in them. Uh, and to fight through some of these major myths that exist about the Crusades. And in particular, one of the major myths is is that people participated because they were motivated by greed, by money and by booty, plunder, land, these kinds of things. Uh, this is even a myth that, that I was taught as an undergrad. And uh, when you pull back the, the, the layer on, on that myth and begin to look at in more detail why people went, and they left us records as to why they went, um, you begin to see that there is a, there was a deep and abiding faith of these warriors, uh, and not just the warriors, but there were non-combatants who went too, men, women, uh, you know, young adults went on the crusades, and they were, um, you know, mostly motivated by their faith, right? Uh, participating in the crusade, you, one could receive a plenary indulgence, uh, which was a which was a big deal back in the day, still a big deal, but but spiritually speaking, for people in the Middle Ages, they were very much rooted in their faith. And the faith was integral to their entire life. And so to receive something that, that great of a spiritual privilege to participate in an armed pilgrimage was something that really motivated them. Now, it's not to say that everyone who participated in the Crusades was a saint uh, or that there weren't things that, that occurred on the, crusading, on the Crusades throughout the movement that, that uh, is, is something that, you know, that, that weren't virtuous and good. That's true. There, there were you know, negative events and, and uh, people acting poorly and, and you know, examples of, of, of horrible things happening, as, as is the case, sadly, with, with pretty much every um, historical event in, 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 in the world. But so we need to fight through that, if you will, and, and understand those things and provide the, under, the proper context to them. Um, but I think modern day Catholics can learn the most from 
the the people who went right sometimes we we tend to see history as just these events and not focus on the fact that there were individual people who went on these events and there are many things that we can learn from them and i think from the people who participated in the crusading movement we can really understand their deep and abiding faith and how integral it was to their daily life and again, uh, very quickly, uh, your book, The Glory of the Crusades, uh, in paperback, uh, came out a few years back. It is still available in, uh, on Amazon. It is, absolutely. It's published by Catholic Answers Press. You can also get it uh, on their website, which is just shop.catholic.com. Excellent. Well, we just scratched the surface, but I really appreciate uh, your perspective and your insights on the Crusades. Uh, Steve, thanks so much uh, for being with us this morning here on Morning Air. Yeah, thank you, John, for having me. Appreciate it. God bless. Many blessings to you. Steve Widenkoff, a lecturer in church history at Christendom College, Graduate School of Theology, and the author of The Glory of the Crusades. And now it's time for another episode of Glenn's Story Corner. As we start to think of heading home for the holidays, our story today, a greatest hit called Welcome Home. The young son had gone to San Francisco. But he was out of money, out of friends, out of options. He'd hit bottom and was at wit's end. This lost son wrote a letter home to his parents living in the Seattle area. He wrote, Dear Mom and Dad, I have sinned deeply against you. I have sinned against you and I have sinned against God and I'm not worthy to be called your son. There's no reason for you to love me or welcome me back home. I'm at the bottom of the barrel. I need to come back home. I hope that you would welcome me. I've been given a ticket for a train, a ticket to get me back to Seattle. The train comes past our farm south of Seattle. The train comes around the bend right past our farmhouse. If you want me to come home, please put a white towel on the clothesline out of the backyard near the tracks. I'll then know that you want me to come back. If there's no towel there, I understand. I'll understand it's not right for me to come back home. The young man sent the letter. He got on the train and started heading north. As he came closer and closer to home, he became more nervous inside, and he was pacing up and down the center aisle of the train. As the train came yet closer and closer to his farmhouse, he couldn't bear it anymore. He was momentarily sitting next to a man, and he said to him, Sir, around this next corner, this next bend, there's going to be a farmhouse on the left, a white house with an old red barn behind it, a dilapidated fence. There'll be a clothesline in the backyard. Would you do me a favor and look and see if there's a white towel hanging on the clothesline? I know it sounds peculiar, but I, I can't bear to look. Well, the train came closer and closer to the bend and started to go around the bend, and the young man's heart was racing as fast as it could. And the man said, Look, 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 open your eyes. The whole clothesline was covered with white towels. The oak trees were covered with white sheets. The barn roof was covered with sheets. The old dilapidated fence was covered with white sheets. There were sheets everywhere. Luke fifteen twenty, And he arose and came to his father. But while he was yet at a distance, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Thanks so much, Glenn. Really appreciate it. Coming up next hour on Morning Air, Pablo Kay, the editor-in-chief of Angelus News, angelusnews.com, will join us from Baltimore with the latest from the U.S. Bishops' Fall meeting. We'll talk all about uh, the document on the Holy Eucharist and the upcoming uh, Eucharistic revival that is planned. And uh, Father James Kabicki will tell us about the story of St. Rose Philippine Duchenne, the founder of a religious order and uh, one who worked with the Native Americans. Stay with us. There's much more on Morning Air straight ahead.